All right, we can turn in our Bibles again to Revelation chapter 9. Revelation 9, verses 13 through 21 this morning, and the title of our message is The Army from the East. And just kind of like last week, this is another one of the places where we have these strange visions that uh, can be hard to interpret or hard to understand because it's something that's, that's uh, outside of what we normally experience in life. However, that doesn't make it any less real. And this, this is something that we should always remember as we get into uh, really this part of the book and moving forward. It's, gonna, it's filled with all of these kinds of visions that uh, John is seeing and describing r- real events and real uh, items that that really exist in the world. And he's using sometimes figurative language, sometimes not figurative language. And it's kind of up to us to, to uh, understand that and understand what's, what's being written. It's also very important to remember Here's the title of our book. This is up here every week, so it's easy to to miss this. The Revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ that we are studying here. This is his plan, God's plan for the world and how his kingdom is going to come to this earth. How God is going to make life on this earth the way that he wants it to be the way that he originally created it to be. And we are certainly not living in that world today. You don't have to, you don't have to live for very long or be here for very long or look around very much to understand that this isn't the way life was supposed to be. And the Old Testament is very clear that there's going to come a time It's described using various phrases, various terms, but there's coming a time, the time of Jacob's trouble is one of them, that's what Jeremiah calls it, before his kingdom comes to the earth. And that's primarily what we are studying about now in Revelation, this period of time that leads up to the kingdom on earth and ultimately we are we are learning about Jesus Christ and his desire for this world his desire for the way he wants people to be and uh th- wants people to live and how he wants this world to be and today we're going to see a part of of what he wants is for his people to repent to for people, not just his people, but all people he wants to change their minds about God, who God is, uh, how we should worship God, and what we think about sin. He wants us all to change our minds in that regard to uh, a correct view of those things, who he is, how we should worship him, and how we should live our lives. And of course, we find ourselves in this future section of the book. These events are not happening today. They will not happen until the tribulation period begins. None of these events will happen until that first seal is broken that we learned about in Revelation chapter 6. And this section of the book goes all the way almost to the end of Revelation uh, 19 when Jesus comes again. Here's another depiction of that. Here's Here we are living in the church age that ends with the rapture of the church. Sometimes subsequent to that, whether it's a day, 10 days, 10 years, I've seen people who think it could be as much as 50 years after the rapture of the church. This tribulation period begins, or the time of Jacob's trouble, Daniel's 70th week, all of these terms that you'll come across and hear all mean the same thing, a seven-year period of time that leads up to Jesus's second coming and the coming of the kingdom to earth. 
And this time of judgment, this seven-year period, begins with pseudo-peace. We saw that in Revelation 6, the seal judgments. Then war, then there's famine, death on an unprecedented scale. We're going to see, uh, proportionally, at least anyway, even more death today in the sixth trumpet judgment. There's also going to be intense persecution of believers During this period of time, the fifth seal, martyrs. And then there was a sixth seal, a a great earthquake and signs in the heavens, essentially, that lead into the seventh seal, which brings us to the trumpet judgments. The trumpet judgments we've seen, we refer to it as a telescoping view for all all of the judgments of the tribulation period that one essentially leads into the next series. The, the, these judgments are not all describing the seven-year period. That's a view that's called recapitulation, if you remember. That, that The idea of that is that the seals describe the seven-year period, the trumpets describe the seven-year period, and the bulls describe the seven-year periods. We wouldn't hold to that view as much as... the the entirety of the tribulation is described uh, by each of the judgment periods. And the judgment periods follow one another. The seal judgments, then the trumpets, then the bulls, and the tribulation period is all of this. All seven years are covered by all of the uh, judgments. Again, Tribulation starts here with the first seal judgment. None of these seal judgments are outside of the seven-year tribulation period. It is wholly contained within the seals, trumpets, and bulls, or the seven-year period. Another potentially confusing part of Revelation is these breaks that we see. Uh, after the sixth seal, we saw a break in chapter seven, kind of described some things that are happening during that period of time. We're about to get to another one. We're coming to a sixth uh, judgment. The sixth trumpet will have our second intermission, if you will. And we're then this is kind of a long one where we're going to go all the way from chapter 10 up to about chapter 16. And we're going to get a lot of information about events that are taking place during this uh, tribulation period. And then we'll finally get to the bowls that end the tribulation period. Some, we can be absolutely certain that the tribulation begins with the first seal, ends with the seventh bowl, Jesus coming again to the earth. The midpoint is the abomination of desolation, when the Antichrist that we're, we're about to get to in chapter 13, where he's described in more detail. He, he will set himself up in, a, in the Jewish temple that will exist in Jerusalem during this tribulation period. He's going to set himself up to be worshiped in the temple. That is the midpoint of the tribulation. Uh, Old and New Testament talks about that. Jesus talked about that. The abomination of desolation. That's the Antichrist setting himself up to be worshiped by the world. That will happen at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation period. Personally, I, I think that the seals and trumpets are all in the first half, and the bulls describe the second half. That's open for debate about, about that. Uh, we'll, uh, more on that to come in the following weeks. Uh, we've studied the trumpet judgments. They begin, the first trumpet brings this unprecedented ecological disaster, hail, fire, blood falling from the sky, burning up trees, grass, uh, the earth, and these kinds of things. Uh, uh, one of the matters of debate in Revelation, is it describing literally what's happening, or is this kind of figurative language for a nuclear bomb? Uh, personally, I hold that it, that this is, it's literal. It's describing these things falling from the sky, not a, not a nuclear 
bomb. Another one, the second trumpet, uh, uh, sometimes thought to be a nuclear bomb that's going to cause this kind of destruction, turning the sea to blood. Uh, we saw this is a third of the ships being sunk. That's essentially, if it happened today, it would be about 100,000 ships. Uh, sea life dying, all of these things happening because something like a great mountain fell into the ocean. Third trumpet judgment, a star falls to the earth and essentially poisons the fresh water. And many, many people die because of this. And uh, we, the, the Old Testament refers to people becoming very scarce on the earth during this period of time. And we are seeing that play out here. We're going to see it even more today. The fourth trumpet judgment, more signs in the skies. A, a third of the stars, a third of the sun, uh, the moon uh, loses a third of its strength or doesn't shine for a, a third as long during the day. Not exactly sure how that's going to, to play out, but never, nevertheless, it will be a very obvious sign to people. Uh, you know, today you live in a city, you, you probably could, there are probably people who live in New York City who've never seen the moon before, never seen the stars because they live in a literal concrete jungle and you can't see them. At this, when this is being written, uh, this would have been very dramatic, a very dramatic sign to them. This is going to be something that is, that is very obviously coming from God. Again, prophesied about in the Old Testament. Jesus talked about these events happening. Revelation tells us when they're going to happen during this tribulation period. Last time we saw this uh, angel coming with the fifth trumpet, an angel coming from heaven with a key opening the abyss and these horrendous creatures come out of the abyss that are able to inflict some sort of torment upon mankind, all those who do not have the seal of God, the 144,000 are exempt from this judgment where these scorpion or locust-like creatures with scorpion's tails, the face of a man, the hair of a woman, the teeth of a lion. Notice they have the face of a man and the hair of a woman. There's, there's only two mentioned there and they're distinct from one another. It never hurts to throw that kind of stuff in there. Two genders, they're different from one another. Uh, and if you, when a person doesn't understand which one they are, it's like a, it's, it is a literal mental disorder to not understand which one of those two uh, that you are. And we, we shouldn't be affirming people in their mental disorders. Like people who think that, well, I have, I think that I need to kill people who wear blue shirts. That would be a mental disorder. And we shouldn't be affirming that. We should be getting these people help. Come back out of the rabbit hole there. Uh, these people, these are demons who are released from the abyss. They have an angelic leader, Apollyon, his name literally means I destroy, probably just a, a higher level demon. I wouldn't say that he's Satan. Uh, we're going to see him come into the, into the story, if you will, here in the coming chapters. But these, these demons are allowed to inflict this pain or some sort of torment on people that is so horrendous that they want to die but they are not going to, to be able to die. Which brings us to the sixth trumpet, this army from the east. Today we'll see the, that they are released also, similar to the way that the demons were released in the fifth trumpet judgment. We'll get a look at the, the riders and also the result of this judgment. 
But we begin with the release. Notice again, uh, Revelation 9 and verse 13 says, Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, one saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. So when this sixth trumpet is blown, we hear this voice from the altar that is before God. Notice the language there. Verse 13, John the apostle, the one who lived with Jesus Christ for three and a half years on the earth, who is having this uh, is a meeting essentially with the risen Christ. He says, I heard. This is not uh, what was known at the time as apocalyptic literature, where someone a person would take on another uh, person's identity and essentially uh, write things that, uh, you know, make up some kind of story that they want people to believe in this kind of thing. This is the Apostle John, the one whom Jesus loved. He had reclined on him at the Last Supper And uh, everybody knew that John was kind of the teacher's pet, if you will, a very solid eyewitness account. I heard this voice that emanated from the golden altar, which is before God. And he talks about the four horns, and there's some debate about the exact, what the text actually Uh, says there, there's textual variance. Should the four be there? Is it just one of the horns? Uh, Essentially, John is saying that this voice is coming out from the midst of the altar. Somewhere around or from the midst of the altar, this voice is coming out. And so whose voice is it? Is it it God's voice? Is it Jesus's voice? Is it some other voice? Uh, I'm going to submit to you that it is most likely the angel that we met back in Revelation chapter 8. This one, if you'll remember, Revelation chapter 8 and verse 3, when the seven angels who are blowing the trumpets are kind of coming together and getting themselves prepared to sound their trumpets, there was another angel that was present there. Revelation 8.3, another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. Uh, and then he took that golden censer and threw it to the earth. And then these uh, judgments are essentially taking place, which is kind of a figurative way of describing that the prayers of the saints are being answered in these judgments. And it was, and it is this angel, unnamed angel, Gabriel, Michael, some other angel. I don't know. The text doesn't say you, if you want to get some ideas on that, Uh, go to YouTube and watch some videos. I'm sure there's all kinds of theories about who this angel is. I really don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us. But it's probably that same angel. The one who had the the golden censer was there and is kind of uh, heading up the seven angels who are sounding these trumpets. And he says, this angel says, in verse 14, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So they are, so these four angels are being released. So who are these four angels? One uh, theory, uh, there were Four angels, if you'll remember back in Revelation chapter 7, one theory is that, oh, well, these are 
these are the same four angels. Those four angels, Revelation 7, verse 1, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Hmm, there's a big difference. And they're holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Those four angels were keeping the judgments from taking place, if you'll remember. Uh, we talked about when before the 144,000 could be sealed, before the judgments were unleashed, there were four angels, but they're standing at the four corners of the earth. They're just kind of there, preventing judgment from taking place. Notice again this language, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Uh, the Bible nowhere else describes good angels or unfallen angels as being bound. The Bible oftentimes, as far as bound or unbound anyway goes, describes demons who are angels after all as being bound. Uh, the the demons that were released from the abyss were essentially bound in the abyss. They were kept there. Uh, we're going to see Satan, who is an angel, be bound at the end of the tribulation and cast into that same abyss. Typically, when angels are described as being bound, they are demonic, uh, fallen angels. And so I would say most likely that's what these four angels are. Different from the four angels in Revelation 7, probably some kind of uh, demonic or fallen angel that is bound at the river Euphrates, at the great river Euphrates. It's not even just the river Euphrates, it's the great river Euphrates, a literal place. You can pull out your Google Maps uh, or your Google Earth app, and you can scroll over to modern-day Iraq, and you'll see a river flowing down through there. And it is the Euphrates River, a very ancient river. It's mentioned in the book of Genesis, the early creation. It's one of the first four rivers that are mentioned in uh, all of creation, the Euphrates River. It's still there, and a very, very important river for that portion of the world. It has been historically a very important river that essentially divides east from west. It was uh, a, a vast barrier separating the people who live on the east side of the Euphrates River from those who live on the west side. Very, very difficult barrier to get over for armies and uh, just humanity in general. And so when we see this being described, there is nothing there whatsoever in the text that would lead us to believe that this is anything other than describing four literal angels who are bound at a literal place. Just because we can't go there today and see four angels with their uh, hands tied behind their, or their wings tied behind their backs... Uh, doesn't mean that they don't exist and that they aren't there. The Bible is full of examples that show us that there is a, an entire world that exists all around us that we cannot see. And Elijah, if memory serves, was allowed to show that to uh, other people to see the, the incredible angelic host that is there to protect them that we don't normally, we aren't able normally to see. Release the four angels who are bound at this great place that's uh, likened at, like the river Euphrates. No, it's not, it doesn't say that. They are bound at the great river Euphrates, a, a literal place. In fact, every literal place that is mentioned in the book or every place that is mentioned in the book of Revelation is a literal place, a real place that exists either on the earth or in, 
in heaven or will exist in the future, including Jerusalem, Babylon, heaven, the new heaven, hell, the lake of fire. All of these places are literal places that exist in creation. Uh, And sometimes, granted, they are described with figurative language, like the city of Jerusalem in in, uh, Revelation chapter 8 and verse 11, when we uh, will learn about the two witnesses during our intermission period here that's coming up, we'll learn about two witnesses that exist. For half of the tribulation period, or three and a half years, they will be uh, witnessing in a certain place, geographic place on the earth, and they're going to do all kinds of signs and wonders. They're going to uh, eventually be killed by the enemies of God, and they will be resurrected three days later. Well, where is this going to happen? Revelation 8 and verse 11 tells us in figurative language. And notice, notice the difference between what we have in Revelation 9, 14, four angels bound at the great river Euphrates and this language, Revelation eleven eight, And there the witness, two witnesses, dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt. But, it, but as we have already seen, when Revelation uses figurative language many, many times, it will give you the answer to what the figurative language is. Mystically, it even it tells us is the point. It tells us this is a, this is a spiritual way of describing this city. It's mystically called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Anybody who knows anything, the slightest bit about the New Testament knows where the Lord was crucified, the city, Jerusalem. Clearly, these two witnesses are going to live and do their witnessing and die and be resurrected right before the entire world in the city of Jerusalem. So even when it's it's using figurative language, it's describing a literal place. All of every place that's mentioned in Revelation is a literal place, including the river Euphrates. So these demons are going to be unbound and they are going to unleash judgment upon the earth. Notice verse 15. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. And here the language is also very, very explicit, very clear here in describing what exactly is taking place, that they were prepared. Uh, Perfect tense, passive voice participle. Perfect tense, past action with ongoing consequences. They, at some point in the past, these demons were prepared for what they are going to do. Passive voice. They weren't uh, doing bench press and push-ups and sit-ups, getting ready to inflict judgment on mankind. They were prepared by someone or something else. That's what the passive voice is. Implication, God has prepared these demons to do what they are about to do. And notice that it is at a specific time that they are prepared. They are prepared for the hour, day, month, and year. Now the historicist is going to say essentially that each one of these is representative of some number of year. The hour equals one year, uh, the day equals 24 years, the month is 30 years, and the year, well, of course, that's uh, 360. 
and somehow they insert a number of years here and we can go back in history and look, oh, in 1100, the Turks uh, started to come to prominence and in 1435 or whatever the year is, they came over the Euphrates and they went all the way to the gates of Vienna. Well, that's very interesting, uh, but you could probably... (laughs) Uh, massage history and go to some point in history and start wherever you want and make it fit. But the language is describing the hour and day and month and year. In other words, this is going to take place at a specific point in history, some day, some very hour, this uh, sixth trumpet is going to blow And these demons are going to be unleashed upon the earth. And God can reveal this because it has been prepared in the past. It's prepared for this exact time. That's why we can have such a thing as prophecy, a revealing of these future events, because God already knows what is going to take place. He can do that because he's omniscient. He knows everything that is happening, did happen in the past, will happen in the future, could possibly happen, what could have happened. If only I would have done this, then this would have been the result. God knows all of that. He knows everything. That's what omniscience is. He knows all of the knowable. So he can reveal to the Apostle John that at one point, in the future, this, these angels are going to be unleashed and they are going to uh, inflict death and destruction upon the earth as has never happened before. And next we see the riders that are described in verses 16 through 19. Start with that first one there in verse 16. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. Again, another description that lets us know that John is uh, an eyewitness to this. This is something that we can, that that we don't have to uh, dream up a meaning to. He heard the number of them that we'll get to here shortly. But it starts with that first, that first phrase there, uh, so that, or it's not the first phrase, but it's at the, uh, I didn't read far enough. Uh, verse 18, a third of mankind will be killed by these plagues is the result of this. Uh, He sees the vision of the horses and the riders riding upon them. Their breastplates are described. The heads of the horses are described. The tails of the horses are described. Verse 18, a third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire, the smoke, and the brimstone, which proceeded out of them. But back up in verse 15, we see that they are released so that they would kill a third of mankind. This Greek phrase, hina, that that they are being released for this very purpose, to kill a third of the people who live on the earth. Again, we get that telescoping idea where the judgments are getting worse and worse as we go along. The fifth trumpet judgment, the demons are released and they're, they're just harming people. As terrible as that is, the people wanted to die, but they didn't. They still had life. At some point subsequent to that, we don't, it reads like it's just the next day. One day an angel comes down, releases them, uh, the demons, and well, they torment people for five months and then, you know, say that happens in February. And then on August 1st, uh, the next trumpet blows and this this demonic army is released. Well, maybe there was more time than that. There probably most likely was. 
But the judgment gets much worse where a third of mankind is killed in this judgment. So that just between two judgments, between the fourth seal and the sixth trumpet, just with those two judgments, half of the world's population is killed. We divide it into four parts like we did before. When the uh, fourth seal is broken, a fourth of mankind is eradicated. So we take one of our four away. That leaves us with three. And now in the sixth trumpet, when the sixth trumpet is blown, half of the remaining third or uh, three quarters is eradicated. That leaves us with half of what we originally had. Uh, So we're talking at this point in time, at least 4 billion people being killed in just these two judgments. Nothing since Noah's flood has come anywhere close to this kind of an eradication of humanity. And that doesn't take into consideration the fifth seal where there were uh, an innumerable number of martyrs that were taken, uh, a vast quantity of martyrs that die. Uh, We've seen famine in the third seal. Clearly people are going to die from that also. Uh, when a hundred thousand ships sink on the ocean, uh, you consider, boy, there's probably, oh, I don't know, about 20 people on, on the average ocean going tanker, 20 times a hundred thousand math in public. I think that's about 2 million. Uh, that's a lot of people just in that, uh, judgment also. So in other words, we're less than half of the world's population at this point in time than what we started with, assuming uh, there's seven, eight billion people on the world when this begins. Speaking of large numbers, notice again the number of the army. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. He's Clearly speaking of a literal number here in the way, the way I read it, at any rate, I'm, I'm kind of a literalist, uh, as you probably already know, not just kind of, I am a, a literalist. And when I read things like, I heard the number of them, that tells me this is, this is a number. It's not just myriads and myriads as some would like to call it. Even some dispensationalists will doubt the literalness of this 200 million. They'll say, uh, well, an army of 200 million, there's just no way that's that's too big. Uh, Ray Steadman, you may be familiar with him. I I really like a lot of what I've seen from Ray Steadman. Um, Yeah. He'll, he points out that you know even in the the Gulf War in 1990, a conglomeration of the nations of the world, they only got just over a million people into the Gulf area to fight against Saddam Hussein. Uh, okay, <laughs> that's fine. John says I heard the number 200 million, and in the myriads and myriads, uh, the language is very similar to what we see in uh, chapter 5 and verse 11, uh, where it says, John in his vision of heaven, he says, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands. He's very different than when he says, uh, using similar terms in the Greek, uh, it's the the terms are very similar. But he says, "I heard the number of them." In Revelation nine, he doesn't say that in Revelation five. He's describing this incredible scene with these angels worshiping God in Revelation five. We've seen, we've read, "I heard the number of them" in another place, Revelation seven four. Speaking of the 144,000, is that just a 
a number that represents all believers of all time, or is that a specific number? Well, it's a specific number. I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000. I heard the number of the horsemen who are coming in this incredible army, 200 million. The, the, the literal terms or the Greek terms are 20,000 and 10,000. 20,000 times 10,000. I already did the math on this one, so it, that doesn't really count. 200 million is the answer. The NASB even gives us the answer. 200 million. 20,000 times 10,000 is 200 million. Uh, Just like places, when we read numbers in the book of Revelation, 99.999%, maybe even 100% of the time when we read numbers in Revelation, they mean numbers like seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven seals, 144,000 Jewish witnesses, 200 million uh, rider army. It means a number. Oh, here's another one. 1,000, 1,000 years means a thousand years, just like it says in the text. When we see numbers in Revelation, don't make things up. Oh, seven. Well, that's, that number means perfection. So that uh, seven actually means 123. No, that's not, that's not how we read uh, uh, the Bible. That's not how uh, personally I read my manuals for flying. When it, when it tells us, you know, at a certain point, well, you have to go 250 knots or 250 miles an hour when you're flying at this particular point in time. I don't get to say, oh, 250. Well, that's the number of, protect, of perfection. And my idea of perfection is flying 300 at this point in time. So I'm just going to do that. That's not how it works. When it says 250 or 210 or 150, that's what it means. The Bible is very, very similar to that. So there's a 200 million rider army. Now then, who are these things? What are they? Are they people? Are they demons? Are they uh, something else? Well, there's debate about that as well. Uh, is it describing a human army? Is this an army of 200 million people? Now, uh, are there enough soldiers east of the Euphrates River to comprise a literal human 200 million man army? You better believe it. Uh, uh, more than a quarter of the world's population, close to half the world's population, if not more, lives east of the Euphrates River, and a quarter plus of the world's population lives in two countries east of the Euphrates River, India and China. Of course, there are enough people there to comprise a 200 million man human army that could be allowed to come across the Euphrates River. And and make no mistake, the Chinese army has the potential to eradicate the entirety of the world's population, uh, not just a third of it. But, uh, and there are good dispensationalists who will say this is a, a, a human army that's going to be unleashed on the world. John Wolverd being one of them. Harry Ironside, another one. There's, there are a litany of them. Ray Stedman, like I mentioned, he also would see this as being a human army, but the number is not a literal number. It's probably just a big number. Uh, there's also very good scholars who believe that this is a demonic army that is being described. Robert Thomas, uh, Charles Ryrie would would mostly fall into that camp. Uh, Ryrie says that it could be either one, uh, but he leans toward a demonic army. I would, I would personally would find myself in agreement with Ryrie there. I think it could be either one. Probably it seems to me that it is a demonic army 
the way that the language is describing what is taking place. Now, some are going to say, well, this is John. He's seeing things that he has no experience with. How would John describe a B-52 bomber or uh, a nuclear bomb going off or uh, tanks and these kinds of things? How He wouldn't have any sort of experience in his life to be able to describe uh, things like that. So he uses this kind of language to describe essentially modern warfare. Uh, It's a possibility. It's a very uh, real possibility. It's also a possibility that this is some sort of demonic activity that is being unleashed on the earth uh, in order to kill one-third of the remainder of Mankind. It doesn't say that they're crossing over the Euphrates and then they are uh, coming west and killing Christians, like the historicist would have us believe. Uh, not, not really what is being described there. They, they, the angels, you'll remember, the angels are in charge of these horsemen. The four angels have these armies underneath them that are released and they kill a third of mankind, not a third of uh, Israelites or a third of people in Europe, a third of humanity all around the world. This is taking place. And the horses, we'll notice, are the ones who are doing the damage. They are the ones who are uh, breathing out this fire, smoke, and brimstone, if you will. It proceeds out of their mouths, Uh, that does the damage. They also have uh, power to destroy things in their tails, it says in verse 19, and that the people are killed by these three plagues, the fire, the smoke, and the brimstone that proceed out of the horses are the ones who are doing the damage. And and what is being described there, of course, is is anything but... uh, natural for a horse to do this kind of damage. So I would lean more towards this as another another demonic attack that is unleashed on humanity uh, to, to punish humanity, essentially, to, in an attempt to try to get them to wake up and repent of your sins. Now, can God use nations to do that, uh, that sort of thing? Yes, he absolutely can. Old Testament, God used Assyria to uh, judge Israel, to conquer part of them, killed vast numbers of them. God used Babylon to do the same thing. God used Rome to do the same thing. Absolutely, it is within the realm of possibility to think that this is something similar to that. Uh, it's also a, a very real possibility that this is some sort of demonic attack, hence the 200 million, the incredible number that is involved here. Uh, a demonic army isn't going to need supply lines like Putin in Ukraine. He can't supply his troops 50 miles over the border. Uh, imagine if it were 200 million going throughout the entire world. I don't think demons would be too worried about their uh, supply lines. They have supernatural ability to do these kinds of things. And what's being described is kind of uh, supernatural in uh, essence. And so one third of the remaining population is killed by this uh, demonic attack. But what is the result. God would want the result to be, okay, I give. Uncle, (laughs) I believe, I believe you. Kind of that breaking point that you can get that mothers can sometimes hopefully reach with their children where they, where they are uh, instilling discipline on their children over and over and over to the point, okay, you win, mom, I'm not going to do that anymore. Uh, These people, 
do not have that sort of a result. That is the result that God would desire. That isn't what happens. Verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. And so you notice that the rest of mankind is, it's really referring to the unbelievers. Their lives are characterized by their, their sin, uh, characterized by their unbelief, characterized by their idolatry, because, for one simple reason, not because they're just horrible, bad people who worship idols and do bad things, but because they are not identified in Christ, by Christ, as, you know, don't, don't uh, look down on these people because you, as a Christian, see yourself as being so much better than they are because they're involved in these horrendous sins against God and humanity. Uh, we, as believers, are identified with Christ, we receive his righteousness imputed to us, transferred to us, freely given to us when we believe in him. These people have not believed, so they are not identified with Christ. So the way that God sees them is as idolaters, sinners, murderers, and the rest that is mentioned there. And it's it's not because they're doing the bad things. It's because they haven't done the one thing that gives them righteousness, and that is believing in Christ. John 3.17, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. These people are being judged because they are not in Christ. They are not in Christ because they have not believed. Not because they're pagan idolaters who are involved in gross sin, but because of their unbelief. Paul says it this way in Romans 3.21. He says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Could not be any more clear. Verse 25 of Romans 3, whom God, Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. You see nothing about works, casting away idols, never committing any sort of sin anymore. It is all purely, simply based on faith in Christ. He died for our sins. He is eternal God. He died for us. He gives us his righteousness at the instant that we trust in him. And sin is the reason that the wrath is being poured out upon the world. That's very clear in uh, many places throughout the book of Revelation and the Bible in general. But the rest of mankind, sometimes called the earth dwellers, we're going to see that phrase more in, the, in this uh, intermission that we're coming up to, they would not repent of the things that they are, that they are 
doing here. So what are they doing? They would not repent. Metanoeos, the Greek term, won't spend a lot of time on that, means change of mind, does not mean feel sorry for, promise to never do again, all of those kinds of things that go along with that. It means to change your mind. They would not change their mind concerning uh, the works of their hands. Now this phrase, when you look that up uh, in the Bible, what does the works of their hands mean? It, well, it, it means idol worship. That These people are literally worshiping false gods and worshiping idols. We see God warning the Israelites about that, Deuteronomy 4.28 Acts 7.41, Stephen in his sermon uh, talks about the Israelites doing that. They're essentially uh, worshiping the works of their hands. And that's what's described there. Also, the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood. Uh, this is uh, entailed in the worship of demons, pagan worship. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10 in verse 20, when he's talking about eating meat, sacrifice to idols and these kinds of things, he equates that with the worship of demons. People may not even realize that that's what they're doing when they're participating in this kind of false worship. First Corinthians 10, 20, Paul says, no, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons, he says to them. And notice that these, these idols, it's so, re just think about it for a second. Think about worshiping something that you just made. You go out to your, to your workshop, you get a piece of wood, you construct whatever the thing is, and then you start worshiping it. It's absolutely ridiculous. I, I've been listening to uh, Moby Dick of late, and, and there's a character in the story who is from Fiji or some island like that, and he worships a piece of wood. And uh, Herman Melville kind of points out a little bit the silliness of that, but that's what these people are doing, worshiping something that they made that can neither see nor hear nor walk nor communicate. And we see it throughout the Old Testament, the same thing. Why in the world do people do this? Well, uh, people have been doing it throughout human history, and they actually still are doing it. And not just in the dark woods of Africa, but even more and more here in America, we see people doing that, uh, worshiping the creation and our own creation, worthless worship. We could spend an entire uh, series talking about worthless worship, making up our own way to worship God and these kinds of uh, things you probably understand where I'm going with that. Not something that we want to be engaged in. We need to be worshiping God uh, according to what is revealed in Scripture to us. But they wouldn't uh, repent of that and notice that they also wouldn't repent of the sins that they were committing. Their, their false worship and their false way of living neither one. They don't want to change their mind about either one. Verse 21, they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. Obviously, this isn't an exhaustive list of, of all sins. This is pretty much uh, the big ones, if, if you will. Uh, and I, I thought I had a, a New Testament verse in here that talks about these same kind of things. I know I did. I'll have to look it up for next week. Again, it's not in my notes. But uh, these, these kinds of sins are, are, are the grossest of sins, if you will, beginning, of course, with murder, uh, the killing of another person. We talked about that in our uh, opening uh, one way to kill another person. Before they're even born, we are killing people. Uh, pharmakia is another very interesting term. Pharmakia is translated here as sorceries. 
And I've seen uh, people online equating uh, sorceries, pharmacia to the vaccine and these kinds of things. Uh, boy, that's, that's a stretch. But at any rate, it can be equated with uh, the use of narcotics and this kind of thing. It is a very similar term. And the, the term is pharmakia in the Greek. Obviously, we get our English term uh, pharmacy from that. Uh, but interest, it's very interesting how these all tie together, particularly that sorcery, pharmakia, uh, drugs, immorality, the, the Greek term porneia that we're familiar with, uh, sexual immorality, if you will, uh, theft. All of these things are tied together with pagan worship. Um, they sacrificed humans. They did it under the influence of of narcotics oftentimes. Uh, And sexual immorality is ingrained and is a vast part of pagan false uh, worship. But going back to the pharmakia, Robert Thomas has this in his commentary, the fourth of the sins, pharmakia, or sorceries, is broader than the variant uh, term in that it can refer to poisons, amulets, charms, drugs, magic spells, or any object that is supposed to possess holiness, illicit lust, or be otherwise enhancing. All of that is contained in that term, uh, pharmakia. Notice this as well. It can also refer to witchcraft. Usually, drugs were involved in such practices. If the use of the drugs is to cause an abortion or infanticide, this is tantamount to the sin of idolatry on the one hand and to murder and fornication on the other. If the drugs create magic spells as practiced in Asia to incite illicit lust, this is equivalent to fornication, he says. So all of it is, is tied together. And that is, that is very much the case with uh, Indians or Native American, I guess we're supposed to say, uh, witch doctors and their, their wise men and these kinds of things in order to have their visions and do the things that they do as witch doctors. Yeah, they took drugs in order to uh, hallucinate and then talk about what they, what they saw. And this is very much the case in a lot of uh, Eastern religions, shamans. Uh, we actually have one of those right down, right down the road here. I, you probably haven't noticed that, but there is one just down the road on the other side. They, you can go to their website. They talk a lot about shamanism and, and Eastern religion and, and this kind of thing. Uh, pharmakia, very much involved in that. Eastern religion, uh, essentially, I guess there aren't any little kids who would understand that they essentially they uh, worship the marriage act to put it uh, delicately. All of this is very much tied together with the uh, pharmacia, immorality, all of these kinds of uh, gross sins that are ultimately tied into worshiping either a false idol or the creation itself. It all goes together in one uh, unholy package, if you will. And these people would not repent of their sins. They would not change their mind concerning who God is, how he should be worshipped, and the sin that was so very prevalent in their lives. And so that brings us to the application. You know, I'm not going to give you all of the nitty-gritty details of your life. I couldn't possibly do that. You know, God knows uh, areas of your life that you need to repent of. Again, we're not going to be here when these events take place, but we are here now and we can be involved in some of, of the sins that are mentioned here. Hopefully we're not constructing our own idols in our workshops and, and worshiping those. I don't think we have an issue with that. But we could have an issue with murder. Uh, Jesus equated that with anger. 
If you're getting angry with your brother, uh, that's the same as murdering him. Uh, what else do we have here? Our, uh, our thinking with our minds, how, how is that how is that going? It, sorceries. I think of uh, the pharmacia affecting the way that we the way that we think. Drugs obviously would would do. That's what they do. <laughs> they affect the way our brains work. Well, how's our thinking going? What are we impacting our thinking with? The kind of things that we're taking into our brains. Maybe not a, an illicit drug, but uh, some of the other things that we can take into our brains act the same way that drugs do, like, oh, let's just say, for example, the next one on the list, porneia, pornography, uh, scientific studies show that has an effect on your brain, and it affects the way that you think and act. Do we need to change our mind about those kinds of things? Are we stealing from God in our our time, our treasures, our... uh, What's the other T? Talents. There we go. I knew you would know, Dave. You're a very talented guy. <laughs> All right. We can steal from God in that same way uh, that's maybe a little bit more subtle, but just as egregious to a holy God. Do we need to change our thinking about that? And just like we are more blessed if we believe without seeing Jesus Christ, I would submit to you that we're also more blessed if we can change our minds about these things when we're reminded from uh, a pastor speaking in the pulpit or just reading the Bible or just the conviction of the Holy Spirit himself, because we all get that from time to time. We'd be more blessed if we could uh, change our mind or repent about those things than having to be attacked by a 200 million demon army. That would be, that would be a good thing. So the sixth trumpet, uh, bringing kind of this section to a close and we move into another intermission going forward, this army from the east. Uh, I'm going to submit to you that, that these are demons that are bound at the, at the literal river Euphrates when the sixth trumpet blows, they will be released, and the armies that go, the demonic armies that go with them will inflict uh, death upon a third of mankind that is to come. And the people did not repent is what is being described here. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this ancient text that is still so relevant to us today. We see the world very clearly moving forward to the time when these events will uh, take place. We can see the chess pieces moving in the world to, to make these things possible. We thank you for living in such a time as this when we get to see these things happening. But even more important than that, we have your word. And I just pray that, that your word and your Holy Spirit would do its work in our lives so that we could be the kind of people that you want us to be in this world while we still have time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.